Uh, one of our favorite guests is with me uh, live via telephone. Dr. Jeffrey Gorak is the Libby Klapperman Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University. He is a prize-winning author. He has written or edited uh, 18 books in the area of American Jewish history, and the brand-new book is called The Jews of Harlem, The Rise, Decline, and Revival of a Jewish Community. It is a New York University Press release. You can go to nypress.org for information. Dr. Jeffrey Gurak, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. It's always a pleasure to speak to you and your community, that's for sure. I greatly appreciate that. Uh, this is not the first time you're writing about Jewish Harlem. Well, when you were my student some 30 years ago, <laughs> uh, my first book was called When Harlem Was Jewish, 1870 to 1930. So this version is a rewrite of that first 60 years, and I added an additional 85 years, bringing the story up to literally the present day as Jews have returned to Harlem, and we're beginning to see the first glimmerings of the emergence of Jewish religious life in Harlem. It's been, it's been slow to evolve as far as religious life is concerned, but now there are a number of, a number of minyanim, uh, almost typically Chabad was the first on the scene about 10 years ago, but now there are a number of shuls uh, in existence, and in fact, uh, this Sunday, the Jewish Community Center of Harlem is opening. That's the first, y, first Jewish Y in Harlem, in over a hundred years. So the book uh, revisits the first 60 years and then adds an additional 85 years. So, uh, you know, I keep all my records from, from 40 years ago when I was able to rewrite the book. And frankly, I have to tell you as my friend that um, when you write as a young scholar and you write as an older scholar, uh, you mature over time, and I think this book is a little bit more accessible than the earlier book. And as uh, I feel much more liberated in my writing these days, uh, for example, in this book, I actually devote uh, two paragraphs to my own family history, because hmm. uh, my father grew up on Park Avenue in a tenement on 100th Street, and I talk about the fact that uh, the four boys shared one bed in their three three room apartment and that's the sort of thing you know a personal popular thing that as just starting out in the business of scholarship i would be reticent to write about so right. i think people will find this book uh, a bit more accessible than the when harlem was jewish and brings the story up to the present day i've heard authors say that as an older writer you have the reader in mind more would you say that's accurate my my voice my voice is different you know in the sciences, in math, for example, you might have a, a young person who's an Eloia genius and uh, at age uh, 14 is doing differential calculus. But as a writer, the older you are and the more you write, and this is a message for all of us, the more you do, I think the better you become. Uh, that's a little bit self-serving in saying this, but... I feel that my voice here is a far more personal voice. Right. I feel that I'm speaking to uh, my readers more than to doctoral advisors, because when Harlem was Jewish, you may recall, was my doctoral dissertation. Right. So I've learned over the years, and I hope that it's reflected in the types of things that uh, I'm writing about uh, today. The other thing I want to say about the book in terms of where it fits into the uh, the field of American Jewish history, that... Um, 
the field has changed, the field has evolved, and uh, I'm writing now about cultural history. I'm writing about Al Jolson. I'm writing about uh, Sophie Tucker. I'm talking about uh, the Gershwins, this type of thing. So I had to educate myself about Jewish contribution to the uh, to the musical and cultural history of Harlem. After Jews moved out, there still was a Jewish entrepreneurial presence, and there was also a Jewish cultural presence working with African Americans in Harlem during the, the 30s and 40s in particular. Hmm. Dr. Jeffrey Gorak is with us. The book is called The Jews of Harlem. What, what, it, what was the original fascination? Understand, I, I understand there was a doctoral thesis, uh, but why that topic? What was your original attraction to, uh, to doing something about Harlem? Good question. So I was a child of the 60s, and I lived through an era in New York, and New York City, New York Jury, is my scholarly beat, where, you know, we grew up uh, um, memorializing Goodman, Schroeder, and Cheney, these three martyrs in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And I also we also lived through 1968-69, the teacher strike, which pit, pitted blacks against Jews. So I wanted to write about a history of Jewish-black relations in the United States. And I said to my doctoral advisor, I'm going to do a book called Jews and Blacks in the Age of Jim Crow, from 1896 to 1954. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know what, uh, to do this right, don't look at the interaction of intellectuals and scholars and the like and politicians. Try to find a place where Jews and blacks live together in the same neighborhood and what sort of interactions took place. So literally, Nachum, I looked out the window of Morningside Heights Fairweather Hall, the History Department of Columbia, and I saw Harlem, and I said, gee, no one's ever studied Harlem before. So it was this engagement with black Jewish history that brought me to Harlem. But then as I started doing the book, the book is more about what does it mean to be a Jew to leave the Lower East Side, the hub of Jewish life for immigrants, and to move uptown. What does it mean in terms of identification, uh, synagogue relationships, uh, the rabbis, the teachers, and things of that sort? So the, the original book ends up being more about internal Jewish life than the external black-Jewish relationship. And ironically, this book, by virtue of the fact that I'm talking about 85 years after Jews left Harlem en masse in the 1920s, uh, I'm writing more about Jewish-black interactions than in the uh, original book. And the other thing I want to say is about this, that from the Harlem book, you were kind enough to mention that I've written a number of books subsequent to that. Right. All of the things that I wrote are somehow connected to the Harlem story. And I'll give, and you know, you and I are big sports fans, right? <laughs> and I wrote a book about Judaism and sports. Right. The first shul in America to have a pool and a shul together was the Institutional Synagogue of Harlem on 116th Street between 5th and, and uh, Lenox Avenue. So that idea that you come to play and you may stay to pray, which was the goal of the Institutional Synagogue and of the Jewish Center on the West Side and of many conservative and orthodox synagogues, that idea, which was emblematic in my sports book, began with the Harlem story. So in many respects, I'm very grateful to Harlem because it gave me a hook to write about so many other things that have informed what I've written as a scholar over the last Two generations. My goodness, you know, I've been privileged to teach at Yeshiva. Now, this is my 39th year wow. at Yeshiva. Wow. And uh, I've had a wonderful experience there. And I have to say that one of the things about 
being at Yeshiva is that Yeshiva has given me the opportunity to write about what interests me as an American Jewish historian. You know, people who teach elsewhere end up teaching, people who are trained as modern Jewish historians end up teaching the Zohar, which is not my area. But fortunately, given the fact that Yeshiva has the largest Jewish studies department in the entire country, that uh, I've been able to teach what I'm interested in. So the feedback from my students has been something that's also uh, energized me in terms of doing this work. Book is called The Jews of Harlem, The Rise, Decline, and Revival of a Jewish Community. Dr. Jeffrey Gorak is with us. Um, are, are you, you mentioned black-Jewish relations and the uh, you know how, how it's possible that some people may be surprised that there was a close relationship between the two communities. Are, are there two personalities at any point, early 1900s, mid-1900s, or even today, uh, that you could point to that symbolized the closeness or the cooperation between the black and Jewish community? Well, one of the things I'm arguing in the book that there's no one Jewish voice with reference to African Americans, and and similarly, there's no one African American voice. So that among Jews, you have people who are very supportive of the African American community, and there are Jews who are restrictionists. Joel Spingarn, a Jew who was one of the founders of the NAACP, was very much involved, and this may surprise everyone. In integrating Harlem, people are unaware of the fact that in many places in Harlem in the 20s and 30s, even though it, the neighborhood is predominantly African-American, there are many restaurants in Harlem that were off-limits to African-Americans. Hmm. And Spingarn was one of these people who pushed for integration. Another example was um, Leo Brecker and Frank Schiffman. They were the owners and operators of the Apollo Theater, this great mecca sure. of African-American theatrical and musical uh, opportunity. And they were people who said, everyone sits together. Blacks are not segregated in the, in the balcony. Uh, everyone works together. So they were people who were very, very supportive of African-Americans. And in the 1960s, uh, there were some attacks against Schiffman for some radical black groups who said that, in fact, he was out to uh, help himself more than the community. And stepping up to the plate, interesting metaphor, was <laughs> Jack Roosevelt Robinson, who said, no, Schiffman and Brecker have a long history of working among uh, uh, African Americans. So what I argue in the book is there's no one Jewish voice. There's good, bad, and ugly in terms of, of that relationship. And similarly, you have the Amsterdam News, which was very supportive of, of Jewish efforts, at the same time, there were uh, a number of notorious um, African-American black nationalists, predecessors of, uh, of Louis Farrakhan, going back to the 1920s. So it's a nuanced story. It's a complicated story. And ironically, now, 40 years later, I'm getting back to the original motivation for writing this book to say, when we look at black-Jewish relationships, it's a very complicated uh, story. So I think people will be uh, intrigued uh, intrigued by that as well. I've had the pleasure of, uh, of, on more than one occasion, of seeing the Lower East Side of Manhattan through your eyes. 
and uh, you know, re- really reliving in just a couple of hours uh, American Jewish history in such an important place, uh, in reference to such an important era. And we see many synagogues and institutions. Obviously, many of them, you know, not active anymore. But you know what I mean. Certainly, mm-hmm. certainly, the edifices uh, are viewable. Uh, if, if we would do the same thing in Harlem, would there be plenty for us to see? Are there plenty of Jewish sites of the last 100 years that you could point out? There, almost all the Jewish sites are now churches. But it, it's sort of interesting. When the first book came out, I was doing walking tours of Harlem. And now I'm back doing walking tours of Harlem. And you have uh, the old Temple Israel, which was on 120th Street and Lenox Avenue. Go there, you see this this beautiful building with Jewish iconography in the uh, uh, in the outside. Ohab Tzedek Synagogue, which has been for the longest time, 95th Street, uh, between Columbus and Amsterdam. Uh, that building is still there. The IS, the Institutional Synagogue. So there are a number of synagogues that are now churches that have survived, but you have to understand that the shul that my grandparents davened in, the Homeler Young Men's Association of Harlem, was a storefront. There were over a hundred different congregations of Jews, particularly in East Harlem, among the poor Jews who rented out space who didn't have buildings. So, um, architecturally speaking, the Lower East Side, the old Lower East Side, and you know, it's become gentrified as much as Harlem has become gentrified. Probably more than Harlem has become gentrified. Mm. Uh, there's much less in terms of what you can see, but there certainly is a lot uh, that, that's, worth, that's worth talking about with, within Harlem. But if, if you go to 116th Street, you look at the Obsetic building, on either side of it, you have a whole new string of stores and buildings. And fortunately for me, when I do these tours, that building has survived as a church because I wouldn't want to say to people, you know, look at this area. This is where the synagogue used to be. So those synagogues have survived as churches, and um, they're very interesting to uh, look at the, uh, the gentrification of Harlem. Uh, in the present day. Dr. Jeffrey Gorak is with us. The Jews of Harlem is the book, The Rise, Decline, and Revival of a Jewish Community. Uh, some people who remember the uh, 60s and 70s uh, where the bulk of the Upper West Side Jewish community, I think we could say, were, were in the 60s and 70s, meaning West 60s mm-hmm. and West 70s. Uh, we, we saw over the next uh, 20, 30 years, uh, the community and the epicenter of the community really move uptown, very, very active now in the 80s and 90s, low 100s. Uh, is, is this now the revival of the Jewish community of Harlem just an extension of that? Or is it more of a separate type of development, the revival of the community? It, it, it's, very, it's very much con, uh, connected. Over the last 10 years ago, there were already more Caucasians and African-Americans in Harlem, and Jews have been part of that return to Harlem. And in fact, from a real estate, from a real estate point of view, it's almost becoming prohibitive to, to buy a brownstone in Harlem, Harlem today. And there has been a migration from, uh, from the west side, and to some extent from the lower east side as well, into Harlem, uh, uh, occupying some of these uh, buildings. And from a religious point of view, the west side Arif has been extended into Harlem, so we can anticipate, you know, when you have an Arif in a community, mm-hmm. that's a sure sign that traditional Jews will be moving in. Uh, my expectation is that the numbers of Jews coming into Harlem of a traditional nature is, is in fact going to grow. But the other dynamic here is, if we look broadly at New York jury, the fact is that gentrified neighborhoods 
are not initially religious. It's only over a course of time as the community begins to grow. So there have been Jews in Harlem returning to Harlem over the last 10 years. It's only the last, the last few years we're beginning to see signs of the uh, revival of Jewish community life in Harlem. So it's, uh, it's a, uh, I end the book by saying Jewish Harlem is a work in progress. Hmm. So we'll see what, uh, we'll see what develops. Uh, but again, uh, when you walk, the str- my wife and I have frequently during the summer walk the streets of Harlem, and uh, we feel very comfortable there. And uh, it's a gentrified neighborhood. It's a safe neighborhood. And I sound like the Chamber of Commerce in Harlem. <laughs> but, but, the, but the truth of the matter is, you know, I have had this affinity for this community. Um, there was an early review of the book came out that called the review uh, Harlem on His Mind, which was, which was a play on words because uh, back in the 1960s, there was a very controversial exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art called Harlem on My Mind, which attacked Jews. Mm. So now Harlem on My Mind has been part of my, part of my life uh, for the uh, last 40 years. And in a sense, if you go back to my, uh, to my father's life, uh, uh, there's been a Gurak connection to Harlem going back to 1905. So that's... Uh, that's very special for me too. Can you uh, can you tell me about the uh, the two photographs on the cover of the book? Are, are those the same building? The that that building was the Beit Midrash Hagadol of Harlem, which was where? What was the address? Which was on a hundred and fifth Street between Madison and Fifth Avenue. It's no longer there. It was an extension. It was an extension of the Beit Midrash Hagadol of Norfolk Street down in your neck of the woods. Right. And in Harlem's heyday, there were a number of landmark synagogues that either had branches in Harlem or moved uptown to Harlem. You know, you and I have talked a number of times about the Eldridge Street Synagogue, right. the Shuren of uh, Eldridge Street. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a uptown Eldridge Street, uh, uh, excuse me, Shuren in Harlem on 115th Street, if I'm not mistaken. And in the book, there's an interesting story, I think a controversial story, of the battle that ensued downtown when the rich Jews, the newly rich Jews called all rightniks of uh, downtown, wanted to move the shul uptown, you know, take the money and run, so to speak. Right. <laughs> and I characterize it as one of the first examples of what we call, and you know, I... I I give the good, the bad, and ugly. I tell it straight uh, of what I call synagogue imperialism, right. which has been an issue for our community since since that day, yeah. um, and uh, it's something which Jews have had to deal with over the course of time. So I think there's resonance from the the Harlem story connected to the Lower East Side, and also connected to uh, what happens to Jews in Gotham after they leave. Uh, and move elsewhere in the 1920s. What do you think in general of the uh, incredible growth and um, gentrification going on in the entire island of Manhattan? We see what's going on in Washington Heights. We read about Inwood. Uh, I would guess the area between uh, Harlem and Washington Heights will also uh, go through its own renaissance at some point in the near future. I mean, it, it seems like anywhere on that island now, uh, is uh, the arrow is only pointing up. Well, the gentrification of Manhattan... If you take a look at one of my earlier books called Jews in Gotham, which I published five years ago, 
I point out that even during the toughest times in New York City, we're talking about the late 70s, during the Beam administration and the early Koch administration, you began to see signs of people not wanting to not wanting to commute into the city, one seeing Manhattan again as as their home. You know, uh, one of the great blessings of teaching at Yeshiva is that when I teach at Stern College on Christmas morning, and I I live in Riverdale, I'm able to drive in and teach it at Stern. It takes me seven minutes to drive from my home in Riverdale, <laughs> right. and normally it takes an hour. Right. So people, a lot of people, and I and I love Long Island. I love Long Island Jews, but I also <laughs> pity them who are on the Long Island Distressway, who have to drive into New York or take the Long Island Railroad into the city. I, I'm very interested in rapid transit history of New York City. Anyway, what I'm saying is that each one of these neighborhoods reflects the fact that people want to live in close proximity to their work. Right. And in fact, for the Harlem story, it's history repeating them itself. Why did Jews move to Lenox Avenue in 1905? Because the subways were, were just built. And you could live uptown. If you owned a factory, you could live in quasi-suburbia, although it's still in Manhattan, get down to work within uh, 15, uh, 15 or 20 minutes. One of the sort of jokes in the book is that when Harlem first became Jewish in the 1870s, Harlem was geographically separate from downtown. And if you wanted to get from 125th Street to Battery Park, in the summertime, the only way to get there was by steamboat. Huh. And it took between 45 minutes and an hour to get downtown. Well, we're opening the Second Avenue rail, uh, subway eventually. Right. At this point, during rush hour, it takes between, oh, 45 minutes to an hour to get downtown. <laughs> so some things have changed and some things have remained uh, the same. <laughs> Studying the growth of a city through rapid transit is a really interesting way of looking at the mention of urban growth. So what I'm trying to say is that this book talks about Jewish history, it talks about African American history, but it also is gives you some insight into the evolution of uh, this great city of New York, which is uh, my hometown. Were, of there, course, uh, were there any uh, were there any Jewish government officials that represented Harlem at any point? Not necessarily in the House of Representatives, but in any capacity that, of any significance? Well, Jacob Cantor who ended up on the board of Yeshiva in 1920s, who was a congressman in, uh, in Harlem, uh, became uh, Manhattan Borough President. Hmm. And, of course, there were a number of uh, pretty uh, important uh, congressmen from the Harlem district. For example, here's, a, here's an interesting connection. Uh, Isaac Siegel, <laughs> who was the um, president of the Institutional Synagogue, in 1916, a year before the synagogue was established, was elected um, to Congress from that district. It was an interesting election. You had three Jewish candidates running for office. You had Morris Silkwit, who was a socialist, who said, vote for me. I have the interests of laboring people at heart. Uh, there was Bernard Rosenblatt, who was not related to Yusselah Rosenblatt, who was the most famous Hazen in, in, in Harlem. Right. Uh, he was... Uh, the executive secretary of the Federation of American Zionists, and he said, vote for me because I'm a Zionist. And Isaac Siegel said, I'm an American Orthodox Jew. And one of his campaign slogans was, if elected, I will be proud to speak both Yiddish and English in the halls of the United States Congress, <laughs> which only begs the question, with whom would he have spoken Yiddish <laughs> to 
in the House <laughs> in the House of Representatives? And the answer probably is Meyer London, <laughs> who course. was a socialist from the Lower East Side. Right. Oh, one. How did Siegel win? It was a very close election. He won because he was very friendly with the Italian American district leader, a fellow named Fiorello LaGuardia, there you who go. assumed that position when Siegel became a state uh, uh, Supreme Court justice uh, in the uh, in the 1920s. And of course, LaGuardia was a fluent Yiddish speaker. Right. He was he was once accused by an opponent of being an anti-Semite, right. which he certainly wasn't. And in response, LaGuardia said, "I'd like to debate Henry Frank over my alleged anti-Semitism in a debate which would have should be entirely conducted in uh, in Yiddish." <laughs> and I have to think that we as Americans would have been much better off if the two uh, presidential candidates today would have spoken in Yiddish. Because that would be a way that very few people would understand what either of them were saying. Amen to that. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 and the FM Dial Broadcasting Live. The Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmam.org. And of course, on the NSN app, Dr. Jeffrey Gorak, the book is The Jews of Harlem, The Rise, Decline, and Revival of a Jewish Community. My cantorial friends would be angry at me if I didn't ask you which synagogue Cantor Yesela Rosenblatt was most associated with in Harlem. He was the husband of the Oheb Tzedek Synagogue. He had a sweetheart contract, which meant he only had to be in shul to daven, <coughs> excuse me, once every four weeks for Shabbat Mevorachim, of course, Shabbat Mevorachim, uh, praying for the, the uh, the inauguration of the new month is a cantorial signature piece, and it was said that when Rosenblatt, Dobbin, the women in the balcony swooned, uh, and <laughs> O.Z. Obsedek was also the site of the, one of the sites of the day-long funeral of the great Yiddish writer Sholem Aleichem. Mm. The funeral, in, it was in 1916, the funeral started in the, in the Bronx, and then it went to Harlem, and uh, Rosenblatt decided Kel Malay Rachamim, and then it went to Lower East Side, and then he was buried in Queens. So that was a real travelogue for for, America, for New York Jews, and it, it took place in Hard and it, it was it was one of the signature synagogues of of that time, and it, it survived quite well. And it's, it's it has been for the longest time on uh, 95th Street in Amsterdam and, and Columbus. Dr. Jeffrey Gorak is the Clapperman Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University, a prize-winning author, written or edited 18 books in American Jewish history. The new one is called The Jews of Harlem, The Rise, Decline, and Revival of a Jewish Community. It's a, a New York University Press release. Dr. Gorak, I assume this is available everywhere at this point? It's available on Amazon. It's also available in Barnes & Noble. And uh, maybe God willing, will be a, someday will be a major motion picture. Uh, that would be nice. That would be pretty That'd cool. Be nice. uh, right. I, I got to take this opportunity. As I get older and older, I appreciate more and more uh, the mentorship uh, you for me that I've enjoyed over all these years. So all I could say is, in addition to thanking you for appearing today, is that thank you for all your guidance for me over the last many decades. Well, many years ago, I said that uh, I predicted and uh, that you would make a. Uh, an important contribution to uh, to American Jewish life. Back then, I really didn't understand how great they would actually be. So this show is, is, is so important to American Jews and so important to everyone who listens to it. So uh, congratulations, Mazel Tov, on uh, I think it's 33 years that yeah. you've been, been doing this. So, and we've had a very nice relationship, and uh, our families are close. So 
Thank God for that. Thank you so much. Mazal tov on the book, and uh, a very happy 5777 to you. Thank you very much. Dr. Jeffrey Gorak, one of our favorites. You're listening to JM in the AM.